Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Guys, we're going to continue our study tonight in Genesis. We'll pick up uh, tonight in Genesis chapter 33 uh, in verse 12. Genesis 33 verse 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. And uh, just a reminder, uh, so next week is kind of a midsummer break. We do this pretty much each year where the week kind of going into or following the 4th of July, we try to give people a little bit of a break. Um, and I would include myself in that. And uh, I know that there's people that have different travel plans next week. And so we'll, of course, have our normal services on Sunday. But we will not have our midweek next week. So just please remember that. We'll post that in the e-bulletin as well. However, next week, ladies, you do have Bible study on Thursday evening. So we'll start to pick back up as we head into the weekend next week. Also, tomorrow here at the church is another blood drive, Red Red cross blood drive. And uh, we do still have spaces available for that. And so uh, if you are interested and willing to donate blood, there, it, there continues to be a significant need. Uh, if some of you, if you're in Red Cross database, you're probably getting alerts of that on a regular basis. So um, please uh, consider that tomorrow. There's still space for walk-ins. Um, so it'll be here at the church starting at 10 o'clock. Um, and I think that's, uh, I think that's it for now. So, and then That was the other thing. A week from Sunday, remember, one service. One service here at the church. Everything will be outside. It'll be at 10 a.m. But you can be here. uh, You can be here as early as 9 a.m. Reconciliation Ministries will have their coffee trailer out there. So it's sort of a full service uh, coffee bar that they'll open up at 9. And so you've got the opportunity to be here for fellowship and to be a part of that. And then uh, uh, we'll have the service at 10 o'clock. And then that will be followed by lunch. And so we'll be ordaining our elders. So we've got four new elders that we'll be ordaining into leadership here at Calvary. Uh, we've got Pastor Jimmy, who is a pastor already, but has never been ordained through Calvary Chapel. So we'll be ordaining him as a Calvary Chapel pastor. And then uh, we have a handful of baptisms that will be happening. And so that's just going to be a, absolutely, it's going to be a great day, great day of fellowship. And so we encourage you guys to come on out, pray for a breeze. Uh, we've got a few big fans as well. We had one of them out there tonight, so hopefully that'll keep the air moving. But you know what? It's summer in South Carolina. It's what we do, right? So uh, come on out for a great day of fellowship. All right. So let's jump back into the word here this evening. As I mentioned, Genesis chapter 33, continuing our study there. We are in the life of Jacob right now. And of course, we're really going to see Jacob in some respects all the way now through the end of the book of Genesis. And we pick back up here in Genesis 33, where uh, Jacob has just come from this experience where he has, one, he's, he's, he's left where he was for 20 years. Uh, that didn't go so well. If, if you recall, he, he intended to leave and then he kind of got sucked back in and then finally gets to a place where he says that enough is enough. We're going, we're leaving. He leaves without telling Laban that he's going. Laban catches up with them. There's a, there's a bit of a, an encounter there with Laban uh, that they're able to, to work through. And, and as he's delivered from that and he continues on in his journey, uh, Jacob is able to see, as it were, a little bit of what's going on in the spiritual realm in that moment as he sees angels that were with him. And it's an encouragement to him that God has delivered him in this moment. He's now continuing on in his journey, going to the place that God has called him to go. Uh, He sees that God has been with him. God has been faithful. And then, as is often the case in our lives, and this is one of the things, you know, Jacob, he sort of follows in the same pattern as those that have gone before him. What we see in Jacob, we've seen a little bit in Isaac, we see a little bit in Abraham, and, and we're going to continue to see this. And, and it's, it should be an encouragement to us. Some of us can look at this and we go, man, what, they, these guys make the same mistakes. Well, as soon as those words come out of your mouth, you've clearly forgotten that you do the same thing, right? And so as we look at these people, we look at their lives, we can, we can see ourselves in them and say, yeah, why is it that we so often just fall into these same patterns, these same mistakes, right? And so this is what's happening in Jacob. Jacob has moments with God and then, and then he, he sort of messes up or, or not even messes up necessarily, but gets in a place where he has a little bit of forgetfulness as to God's faithfulness. And, and, that, and that happens very quickly as he's delivered by God. But then as they begin to approach 
uh, his homeland, the, he sends messengers out to go before him to uh, check on Esau, to, to figure out where he's at, to, to begin to share that, hey, he's coming back. And of course, his messengers return and they say, it's great news, Esau's coming and he's got 400 men with him. And Jacob thinks, oh no, that's terrible news, right? He's coming, he, he clearly still uh, is intent on killing me. And so he goes into a place of fear. And so from there then, Jacob begins to pray. We see maturity on the part of Jacob as he prays and, and he seeks the Lord and, and he reminds the Lord of, of his promises. He prays the promises of God. And, and then he comes into this, this amazing encounter with, with really God himself or a pre-incarnate form of, of Jesus as he, as he wrestles with this man, this angel. And, and in this wrestling, God really brings Jacob to a wonderful place of surrender or perhaps even for the first time in Jacob's life, he's really just fully transparent before God, fully vulnerable before God as God asks him, what's your name? And Jacob says, I'm, I'm Jacob. And, and, and that's significant for Jacob because we know for Jacob, his entire life really was spent trying to be something else, trying to be somebody that he wasn't, not really leaning into who it was that God created him to be. And God's grace is just ever on display as, as uh, Jacob says, I'm, I'm Jacob. And, and God says, well, I'm going to change your name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you someone new. Now, now I'm going to, in effect, tell you who I have created you to be. And he, he names him Israel for the fact that he had prevailed with God. He was persistent in his prayer, but he was also brought to a place of, of emptying, a, a good place of emptying where he was surrendered before God. And, and, uh, and so then as they, as they go out from there, um, he comes now, he's, Jacob's got a limp, right? And he, and he goes from this encounter with God and he sort of limps now across the, 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 the river there. And uh, he goes to have his encounter with Esau. He's surrendered at this point. It's sort of like, hey, whatever's going to happen here is going to happen. And so he sends some people out before him and he comes to Esau. And what he finds is that his fears were not realized. And so often that's the case in our own lives, is it not? You know, oftentimes, and this would certainly be a great example of this, that when relationships have yet to be reconciled, when repentance has yet to occur, we can convince ourselves of a lot of things. Paranoia can very easily begin to take over. We can begin to convince ourselves of all the things that are going to happen. And, 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 and we, we can begin to build these things up. And, uh, and this was certainly the case for Jacob as he fully expects that Esau's there to, to take his life. And, and as they come together, Esau, of course, uh, says, no, no, no. I, I've loved, I, I love you. I've longed to, to see you. And and so they have this encounter as, as brothers where really they're just trying to now exchange goods to make each of them to try and make it right. And here, take my gift. No, you, no, you take this. And they're sort of going back and forth. And, and that's where we pick up then here in verse 12 is then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And so here Esau is excited by the reunion with his brother. And he essentially suggests after they've gone through this back and forth of offering one another various things. And, and uh, Esau finally accepts. And, and he says, let us go. To, well, what he's saying here is let's go together. Let's continue on. Let's, let's, go, let's go to my place. Come over to my house. You, you come with me. And what's interesting here is though there is this reunion and though certainly there's aspects of Jacob's fears that at this point should have been put to rest, uh, Jacob's resistant. Now, it may have been true, in fact, that he's saying, I, I don't know that I should push my family and, and the animals and all these different things too hard today. But what we'll find here is, is he told his brother, you go on ahead and I'll meet you there. But Jacob never goes. Uh, and, and whether or not this is truly just kind of the pattern for Jacob, where even here he's being a little deceptive, or if something along the way catches his attention and drives him off course, we don't know for sure. But, but here he tells his brother, you go on ahead, I'll catch up with you. 
And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. And so again, Esau is here, he's, he's, wanting to, he's wanting to offer some things, he's wanting to help. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Jacob, Jacob refuses. And so Esau returned, verse 16, that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, as we see this happening here, once again, we, we don't have uh, great insight into the, the length of time that's transpired. We certainly don't know all of the details of the events of each day. But it should be readily apparent to us that very quickly here, Jacob is kind of getting off track again. And, and so as, as we encounter this and then we go into chapter 34, which by the way is a, is a difficult chapter... Difficult in terms of its content, its heaviness. It's a chapter that's entirely absent of the mention of God. And in light of the evil that we see in chapter 34, that should be no surprise. And, but, but anticipating that, we should look at what's happening here. And then we should quickly, at the beginning of our consideration of this text here tonight, I think be willing to evaluate and even ask ourselves, perhaps in times past in our own lives, where have we gotten off track? Where have we maybe wandered away a little bit from what it is that the Lord has called us to? Where have we, and perhaps you're more familiar with the term backslide or backslidden. Where have, we, where have we backslidden perhaps at times in our lives? Maybe you can think of a time in your past where you know this is, this is where I, I got off track a little bit. Here's some of the things that maybe caused that. Or maybe you're one, and maybe somebody who's, who's watching online or who's tuning in later on. And, and the reality is for you, may, I'm there right now. I mean, I'm a little bit off track right now. Because as we look at this texture, what I think we're going to see in my perspective on it, which I think aligns here, is that we see Jacob go into another season of backsliding. And the, the beauty of it is, is that we're going to see God's grace shine through once again. But as we read these texts and as we find ourselves relating to these individuals, we should be willing and, and, and hopefully allow the Holy Spirit to, to pierce our hearts, maybe preemptively, before we find ourselves in similar positions. So here, it's this interesting pattern, and I don't, to say I don't understand it wouldn't be fair, because that would, be, that would suggest that I haven't had my own struggles in my own life. But I do find it difficult sometimes when I read these texts to go, man, Jacob, it was just a moment ago that God showed, showed himself so faithful. What, what, what? What is it? What is this bend towards these other things, towards the things of the world? Why, why Jacob, tell your brother, hey, I'll, I'll see you there. And then beeline over this way. Now, maybe, maybe it's the fact that Esau wasn't, wasn't really a good guy. I mean, he behaves maybe like a gentleman here, but ultimately scripture suggests to us that he was, he was a fornicator. He was lost. Um, Maybe there was some insight on Jacob's part there. We don't know. But what we see here is that Jacob goes not to the place that God has called him to, but to a place that seems that he's desired instead. And so he goes to Succoth. Uh, he, he builds a house. That right there tells us something's up because he, they were called to dwell in tents. But yet it says here that he built a house. Uh, we could look at that and say, well, what's, what's, what's the big deal? But he was to be a people who dwelt in tents. That was God's design for him. That was God's direction. So right off the bat, we see here that he's, he, he's led to maybe establish more roots than what he was intended to in this area. And he, he builds booths for his livestock. And therefore, the name is it's literally called the place of, of booths. And then we continue on. He's not there long. And so maybe there's a realization on his part that, hey, I, I probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, maybe something else compels him to go because in verse 18, we see then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. So he moves on from the place called Succoth where he had built a house. And now he moves on safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And so uh, technically speaking, he is in the promised land at this point. Um, when he came from Paddan Aram and he pitched his tent. So now he's back in a tent, but he's before the city. So he has now pitched his tent toward the city. Now, there isn't necessarily anything inherently wrong with a city per se, other than what we're going to find out here is that this is somewhat of a wicked city. Does anyone remember of another individual who pitched his tent towards a wicked city? Lot? 
right? And the same pattern was happening there. Listen, guys, we're foolish if we don't recognize that the world has a draw. And, and, and for any of us to think that we are immune to it is, once again, foolish. We need to be aware of these things. And, and there is some speculation here, certainly, but it seems something has drawn Jacob toward this city. So he's pitched his tent toward the city, and he's not totally off the rails at this point, but this is what happens when we're in a, in a state of backsliding, is that it's somewhat of a slow fade. It rarely happens overnight, But little by little, by little by little, we find ourselves compromising. And so it begins with a tent pitched toward the city. Now there he erects an altar and he calls it El Elohe Israel, Almighty God of Israel. And so there is a sense still, he's not abandoned God, but he is beginning to compromise. And because of that, and we'll consider this in a little more depth once we get through this passage, I would submit to you that the events that are to follow could have been avoided. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. The implication here is that Dinah, one of Jacob's daughters, uh, is, is wanting to get out. And, and whether they're friends or whether she wants to meet some people who may be friends, she's now in a position, you can argue, because of Jacob's decision where his daughter is going to be making friends with people she shouldn't. Furthermore, as she's going out, seemingly alone, the, the, the nature of the land in which they were living and the time, she would have immediately made herself very vulnerable. And when Shechem, verse 2, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Verse 3, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young woman as a wife. Now for some of you, if these four verses are rather astonishing or surprising, they they should be. If anyone is led to think that maybe, maybe what they read wasn't exactly what they thought it was because it sounds like this guy actually has a, a love for this young woman, he doesn't. What this is, is a situation of rape. And, and then this this young man deciding that, boy, he, maybe he developed, uh, developed some sort of an affection. I, I'm of the opinion that it's more of an infatuation. And uh, again, uh, pagan culture of the time, get me this young woman as a wife. Right, so now he begins to sort of make his, his, his demands, as it were, of her. And Jacob heard, verse 5, that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Notice there's no mention whatsoever of uh, the the rape. There's no attempted uh, apology. There's no... uh, There's no trying to to make this right, to absolve it really, but, but rather to just say, hey... Let's, let's work together here. Let's make this a business deal. This can be profitable for, for all of us. And, and, and so you've got Jacob who I don't fully understand. It says he holds his peace until his sons come back. But the, the text would suggest that Jacob really never does much at all. Never says much at all. Never does much at all. The brothers come back. And of course, family honor in this particular time is of great importance. And they're, they're angered, aggrieved. This is a disgraceful thing, and it's, and it's good that Scripture says that it is. And no doubt they're trying to figure out what's, what's going on with Dad here, and what's going to be done. How are, we, how are we going to avenge our sister? And I don't blame them for having that question. And what's then been brought before them now is, is, is a very concerning thing, that they have a decision to make regarding whether or not they're going to intermarry, whether or not they're going to uh, involve themselves with a pagan culture. And knowing, of course, that, that, that this is the, 
This is the line. I mean, this is what, what, what God is doing here through this family is establishing his chosen people. There's much at stake. And then Shechem, verse 11, said to her, uh, then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. I, I mean, you can only imagine men, brothers, family members in a situation like this, what your feeling towards such an individual would be. The, 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 the tragedy alone of, of, of just what has happened, the disgrace of it. And then for this man to be saying, hey, let me find favor. And then let's work out a deal here. Essentially, name your price. And so, like I said before, this chapter is a, a difficult chapter. And so in verse 13, but the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and they spoke deceitfully. I don't know their hearts. I don't know their minds. Other than I can assume that they are very angry. Scripture has told us as much. And they're thinking through, how do we, how do we get revenge? How do we avenge our sister? And, and, and I'm inclined to think because Jacob isn't doing much in this moment that uh, they begin to say, okay, we're, we're going to work something out here. We're going to figure out a way. And so they're speaking deceitfully, meaning they're crafting a plan because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And so in verse 14, and they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a reproach to us. Verse 15, but on this condition, we will consent to you if you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. Which doesn't speak to me of much honor in that family. In verse 20, And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let, that, let us give them our daughters. Now at this point, the men of the city are probably thinking, Hey, sounds good. We can get on board with that deal. But of course, Hamor and Shechem at this point need, need to deal with the fact that they've got to convince all the men of this city to agree to another minor detail. Verse 22, only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. No doubt there were men amongst the city that said, what? What is this even? Because remember, God's people at this point, though they were known, all the practices weren't necessarily understood and weren't familiar with everything. And, and so this had to be a, a, a real sale that they were making to these men to convince them to go through this process for the sake of, uh, of being able to uh, work with and, and combine with uh, Jacob's people. But look at what they communicate. Look at what they say. Because, and this gives us insight once again, not unlike last time when we were considering just how much Jacob had and that he was able to parade so much of a gift before his brother uh, and give so much away and probably not even affect much of what he has. This gives us a sense of truly how wealthy Jacob has become. Because in verse 23, they say, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? And so here's, right, this is the motivator. This is the thing that they are using to appeal to the people to say, listen, this, this probably seems very uh, uncomfortable. This seems very uh, rash, right? I, I, I'm sure you're a little surprised by our request. But look, look at what we're going to gain. And the fact that all these men at this point then agree tells us that this, in fact, was going to be very profitable for them. And so all who, verse, verse 24, and all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now remember, uh, Jacob's sons had dealt deceitfully. There was a plan that they were pulling together. And depending on how you look at this, you could say to yourself, well, that was pretty clever. The problem is, from the very beginning here, as they engaged with one who they had every right to be angry with. And you could even say a righteous anger for what was done. Immediately they begin to lie. 
They begin to deceive. And I wonder, where did they learn some of that? Right? But perhaps even from their own father, who was known for his own deceit, for his own lies. As we know, as parents, uh, there's much that's caught, even more so than taught, right? And so, as much as we can look at this situation and go, man, these guys are, these guys are crafty warriors here. They've figured out a, a, a great plan. It's deceit that's driving them. And so it came to pass, verse 25, on the third day, uh, and there, I, I read uh, just a brief account of, um, it was a rabbi who was sort of talking about the, the Jewish custom of circumcision and stating specifically that, in fact, on the third day would often be the day of the greatest pain um, experienced through that procedure. And so they, it comes to pass on the third day when they were in pain, and, and, and this rabbi saying it, it was, in fact, quite debilitating, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. Now, this should tell us then again how much or how incapacitated they were, in fact, that two men can sort of come in and, yes, by surprise, but essentially be successful in wiping out the men of the city. But they didn't stop there. They killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword. And took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. And this was extensive. The havoc that they reaped upon this city, plundering it, taking, taking, killing all the men, plundering all the goods, taking all the women and children as slaves. Now, what we should recognize here, and again, let's all just say it, this is a messed up chapter. But this is intended to be the people of God. And no matter the injustice that was done, it doesn't justify the actions that followed. To be able to, to look at what's happening here and say, are they, these are God's chosen people? This, these are the people that God is intending to, to, to make a, a great reputation of in the land? And so certainly as we look at this, we should find ourselves going, whoa, I think they went a little too far. And, and, and not that any of us have, have found ourselves in a, in a similar situation uh, as this, but I wonder, and I can even think in my own life, of what are the times in which you know, I have in, in anger and in frustration given in to the fleshly desire to, to avenge, to, to when have I justified my actions? When have, I, when have I done things that I know would bring shame upon the name of God? And verse 30, we see that that's really what happens here with, with Jacob. As Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? So in their minds, they're, they're saying, listen, he's treated her like, like, a, like a prostitute. And, and certainly Jacob's right in terms of, of, look, what you've done could very well result in, in these different things. But I think it's also uh, pretty surprising here to see that there's, there's still really no mention from Jacob. There's, there's really no remorse in terms of, man, I, I should have dealt with this earlier. I should have handled this situation differently. Uh, think of the people and the families that are impacted by what you've done. No, what's Jacob's response? I mean, what's going to happen to me? Do you know what's going to happen to me? I mean, Jacob has somehow fallen back into this me, me, me mentality. And now he's, deal and now he's dealing with fear again. Jacob's concerned for himself. He says, you brought, you've brought shame upon me. And, and while, yes, we don't ever want to be guilty of bringing shame upon the name of God, here Jacob's concerned about himself. And it, it reminds me of what Jesus taught there in, in, um, in Matthew uh, 7. The beginning of Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And Jacob here is dealing with a, a, a real plank in his own eye. Seemingly as he's not recognizing that many of the errors of his own way have contributed to the sordid state of his family. And when you really think about his family at this point, the encounter he had had with God not that long ago, to have come across the, the, the river, to have approached his brother and think it, it meant perhaps his, his sure death, but to be once again delivered from that. I mean, over and over again, the faithfulness of God. And to think now at this point, I mean, really, to, to some degree, and even though we're not truly able, but to put ourselves in his position and to think, what's the state of his family in this moment? He's living in an area that he wasn't supposed to be in. He's, he's subjected his family to the, to, to the things of the world, the defilement of the world. His daughter's now been raped and held captive for a period of time. His sons are now mass murderers. And he's convinced that most of the people of the land are going to come and destroy him. I mean, again, difficult for us to truly grasp the magnitude of this. But, but if we were able, no doubt it would be an incredible sinking feeling, a heavy feeling upon us, a feeling of oppression, just this, this reality that life is over. What a mess. And before we move into the first part, we're not going to go through all of chapter 35 in case you're wondering. But we've got to deal with the first part of it. Just be cruel not to. But before we get into that chapter, we need to pause here for a moment. And, 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 and as we think of this mess, ask ourselves, why? What got him there? I read one commentator who asked the question of, and why would God give us this chapter? Like, there's, as I said before, there's no mention of God in this chapter. I'm almost inclined to say praise God for that because it's just such a messy chapter. But why? Why does he give us this? Well, the principle that we need to understand is that if it's in the Word of God, it's there for a reason, right? God didn't make a mistake in His Word. It's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that put this chapter there. Why, God? Well, go back to right before all of this stuff happened. What did, he, what did Jacob do? He pitched his tent before the city. It is, he put his family in a position where they were, where they were face-to-face with the things of the world. Now, as I say that, am I advocating just an absolute retreat from the things of the world? Am I, am I advocating for a monastic lifestyle? No, that's inconsistent with Scripture. But we know that in, in James in chapter 4, we considered this recently on a Sunday morning. In James chapter 4, he's very clear on what it means to be a friend of the world. In fact, in that whole passage from James chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war that you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Guys, we've got to take scripture like that to heart. When his word says that if you make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God, that's just not a, a phrase for a poster. That's just not sort of a, a hey, consider this at some point. You know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll offer some insight along the way. No, that's, it's a declaration. Listen, Christian, if you're a friend of the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. You can't straddle the line. And guys, I think we need to take that seriously. When we encounter passages like this, we need to take it seriously. We need to be willing to go, Lord, is this, is, is this me in some respects? And you may not be sitting here tonight just going headlong towards the world, but it's incumbent upon us when we encounter passages of Scripture like this to say, Lord, are there things in my life? Have I invited aspects of the world into my life? Oh, but that's legalistic. We just, Christians are too, you know, Christians are just too stuffy and they don't know how to have any fun. And No, give me a break. God's Word this is a love letter to us. His design is for, for, for safety, for peace. Oh, he's told us clearly the enemy has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And the enemy is the prince of this world. And so if you think for a moment that indulging in the things of this world 
are just it's just going to be fun and it's just going to be it's just going to be a good time. It's just it's just Christians having a good time. Rest assured, the enemy's looking for how he can take you down. But Jesus said, "But I've come that you may have what life and have it abundantly." And yes, with obedience to my word, you'll have that. It is an abundant life. It is a good thing. Now listen, he is also the creator of this world. And so please understand, I'm not suggesting that we just need to just walk around like this and never, listen, go outside and, and be willing to see God in his creation. And be willing to receive blessings that he gives you and say, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this wonderful blessing. Pastor Roger up in Kalamazoo, and I, he, he said, he goes, someday I'm going to write a book just called Spoiled by God. He's like, man, my life's been awesome. And he's had his trials, but, but he's, he's just been blessed in so many ways. And some of those things are material things that God has given him, and he's had a loose grip on it. And he's just said, man, God, thank you for that. And so we got to look here that this, this man, this Jacob, he's, a, he's the dad, he's the leader, and he put his family in a situation where they were going to be corrupted by the things of the world. And, and we know this not just because of where he pitched his tent, but also because that's not where God told him to go. Where did God tell him to go? Does anybody remember? Go back to Genesis 31. Genesis 31, verse 13. This is when, this is when Jacob was fleeing from Laban. God had already come and told him once, go. And now he comes again. He says, listen, Jacob, and I'm paraphrasing, go. It's time for you to go. In verse 13, he says, I am the God of where? Bethel. Because God's saying, you remember me? You remember that place? Guys, it's the equivalent of God speaking into your life and going, remember when you were saved? Remember when you gave your life to me? What was going on in your head? What was going on in your heart? What was happening at that time? You remember that? Oh man, I remember where I was. I remember what was going on in my life. I remember the things that I was repenting of. I remember the stuff that I was going, man, okay, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Lord, take it from me. I'm done with it. You know, some of those things made their way back into my life over time. Oh, I was just an on-fire Christian. I was just zealous for the Lord, too zealous. Is that what it was? Just compromise start to happen again. He says, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. Jacob's in a tough spot. And yes, it's good for us to pause there and sit there for a minute and meditate there and even kind of think about, God, are there things in my life? Have I wandered away a little bit? Am I tempted to? Are there things, is there a place that I'm going? Maybe you sort of warned me. I'm playing with fire a little bit. And it's good for us to reflect there. It's good for us to allow the Spirit to, to come in and work in us in that way. But praise God, he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in that place. God's not done with you when you're there. Think back to our study of Romans that we're going just this past Sunday in Romans 5.20, where sin abounds what? Grace abounds all the more. Super abounding grace, remember? And so God's not done with Jacob and God's not done with us. And it's amazing what happens here. And even to go back to... uh, to James for a moment, because I didn't read verse 6. Are we good? All right. Verse 5 and 6 of James chapter 4. She says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Verse 6, but what? He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so as we look at what's happening here with Jacob, I mean, let's be clear here. Jacob's life is a mess in this moment. I mean, many of us can probably not relate to, to just all of the circumstances that are, that, are, that are piling on top of one another in this moment in Jacob's life. And in our thinking, our way of thinking would just sort of be, and probably Jacob's too, based off of what he says, is like, that's it, we're done. It's over. I've gone too far. But in chapter 35, in verse 1, look what happens. Then God said to Jacob, and we could even stop right there, because God, God's there. God's still speaking to him. God said to Jacob, arise. Where does he tell him to go? Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. God calls him again. Can you believe this? In the middle of this mess, God is there and he says, arise, Jacob. 
And as he says, go to Bethel, where he says, go, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. And guys, I would submit to you that the same principle applies in our own lives. When we find ourselves in a spot where we've backslidden, where we've gotten off track, where we've allowed the things of the world to come in again, where maybe we have even just in, in disobedience and in stubbornness sort of said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pitching my tent towards the world. I'm just doing this. I'm going after it. I'm tired of this stuff. I'm tired of rules. And I just want to have a little bit of fun. And we begin to, to suggest that, that, that what God's plan is isn't really a good plan. And all these different things in our life. That When we find ourselves in that place and we, we find ourselves in a pit of our own making, we can remember that God's grace abounds. And that He's there. And what He's calling us to is to go back. Go back to the beginning. In Revelation... In Revelation chapter 2, we've considered this passage together before. In Revelation chapter 2, we see, all, of course, the, the letters to the, to the various churches. And, and at the beginning of chapter 2, it's the, the loveless church. It says in verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And what does he say? And therefore I condemn you to an eternity of torment. Is that what he says? No. He says, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, God says, no, repent. Remember, remember where it was. Remember where you were. He says to Jacob, go back. Go back to that place where you were saved. Go back to that encounter with me. Build an altar there. Remember it. And Christian, the same thing needs to happen for us. When we find ourselves in those places, we need to go, okay, where was I? Where was I when I was strong, when I was seeking after the Lord, when I was following the Lord, when I was on fire for Jesus? What was, what was unique to that time? What was going on in my life in that time? What are the commitments? What's the vow that I made to the Lord? What altars did I build to God? Revisit those things and be willing to say, okay, God, I'm going to go back to that. And thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, your willingness to allow that. And then here's the wonderful thing that happens for Jacob because he's getting it. Verse 2, and Jacob said to his household, so now there's leadership. I think Jacob has to in this moment be recognizing, man, I've let some things go. And men in the room, dads in the room, we've got to own this. Much of the reason why our culture is where it is today is because men are not fulfilling their God-given role. And you don't have to be a biological dad in order to fulfill that role. It comes in a variety of ways, but this world needs godly men to stand up and to lead. And far too often, women are having to take that responsibility. And so Jacob here is now taking this seriously. And so he says to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves, change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. You see, Jacob understands, man, I've gotten off track, but God is with me and he's called me to go back and we're going, we're going to get, we're going to fix this. But he says essentially, purge everything. And so there's a couple of things that we see here. The first of which is it should cause us to go like, whoa, it really did happen. Like the stuff was... It was going bad in his family, like foreign gods had come in, right? And, and we even see that there, there's various aspects of their garments and their earrings and their jewelry and different things. I mean, it is not speculation to say that their proximity to the things of the world had inv invaded their life. But now he's awake to it again. He's wise to it and he's saying enough is enough. But here's the other thing I want us to understand here. And I think this is very fitting as well, especially as we consider our study of Romans. Notice here that God said, first, go to Bethel. And then Jacob responds and says, hey, okay, we got to clean this stuff up. How often do we get that backwards? I can't go to Bethel until I clean myself up, right? I can't go to God until I clean myself up. It's not for you to do that. 
Your works can't get you to God. It's he who does it. And then we respond. And so Jacob here is responding. He says, I'm going to make an altar there to God. He's been with us. And so that's the other thing, guys. Remember the psalmist. There's nowhere that you can go where God is not. If you think you're backsliding somewhere and you're just sort of, yeah, I'm just going to hang out here for a while. I'm all alone. Nobody sees me. Everything's good. Wrong. He is an, he is an omnipresent God. He is everywhere at all times, which by the way, Satan is not. Okay. Remember that too. Only God is omnipresent. And so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods, which were in their hands, in their hands. The earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. I think he, it's interesting that he put the means of their sin, as it were, at the base of a tree. This Sunday we get to journey into Romans 6. Pray for me. Pray for you guys. <laughs> what a chapter. We are no longer slaves to sin. Why? It was dealt with on the cross, right? I don't know if there's a parallel here. It's just interesting. He buries it at the tree. They journeyed, verse 5, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. Because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. And if it's not enough in this moment, that in the midst of his mess, God says to him, Jacob, get up. Get up out of this mess. Go to Bethel. Go back to the beginning. Remember where this all began. Remember the vow. He shows him grace. And so Jacob goes and, and, he, and he, he buries the idols and he goes to Bethel and he sets up an altar and he worships. He goes back to a place of, of right worship. And, and that, that, that would be sufficient, would it not? But then God, not only does God protect them as they make their journey, but then God shows up again. In verse 8, we have this, this verse sort of drops in here. This is really the only mention of, of Deborah that we see here. It says, now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called uh, Alan Bacchus. And then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants. After you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And so Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. And so not only does, does God just move in, in amazing grace in this moment just to even call Jacob out of, out of this pit and to restore him, but he then goes to remind him of the promise that's still upon his life. And that should be an encouragement also to us in so many ways, uh, pr probably chief of which is that, yes, even though we can get off track, even though we can find ourselves in pits of our own making and, and certainly in those moments uh, to be grieved by our sin, yes, we also need not convince ourselves that then God is just done with us. Listen, Christian, we can say today by the virtue of you sitting here in this room right now, God's not done with you. He's not done with you. And so no matter where you're at or what you may be thinking about or what you're dealing with or maybe circumstances in your life have changed and you're just not sure what the future holds or you're, 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 you're just, you know, you're struggling still with just aspects of your own sinfulness and you're thinking, God, I just want this out of my life and the enemy's going to come in and say, no, not you. This is just, this is just your lot and, you're, and you're, you're beyond God's grace or he's never going to use you. Those are lies from the enemy. Well, there's breath in your lungs. God says, I can still use you. So have a plan for you. It's appointed a man once to die. Until that time comes, then he is at work. For those who are called working all things together for good, using your life for his glory. It's the chief end of man. 
And so don't you, don't you dare for a second think that your life doesn't have purpose, doesn't have value, that he can't use you for his glory. Even when there's a nasty past that keeps rearing up and reminding you, you tell that past what the cross did for you, that you're covered in the blood of the lamb. Right? Sin no longer has its hold on you. We're going to consider more of that on Sunday morning. And it's a fun one to consider. Guys, when we come together on Sunday to look at Romans 6 and to, and to really, when we really consider it, to think, man, sin, sin doesn't have me anymore. And so then the real, what the reality of that then does in terms of shining light on, our, on the struggles in our life, the things that maybe we still just find ourselves sort of habitually going back to and, and, and knowing, man, I, I am, I haven't been delivered of this. Guys, that's incredible. He did it. God's grace is good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your grace. And as always, Lord, when we say such things, it just sounds so insufficient. Lord, those are our words, the language I have to use. We're grateful, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I know that the greatest way that we can show you that is to say, Lord, here's my life. It's yours. And so, Lord, for each of us here tonight, no matter where we're at, whether we're here tonight and we know, yeah, I've been, I've been off track, I've been, I've been backsliding. Whether we're here tonight and saying, man, I'm, I'm, I'm alive, I'm good. God is good. He's been showing me so much. May we all, Lord, collectively just again here this evening say, Lord, I'm yours. Take my life, Lord. Use it for your glory. We love you so much, Lord. I thank you for each of these gathered here tonight. Uh, bless them, Lord Jesus, as they follow after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.